0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward today to talking with Philip Limbury about his book titled 60 Harvests Left, How to Reach a Nature-Friendly Future, just out in 2022 from Bloomsbury, which is a really interesting book. Now, obviously... Philip, um, as he will soon introduce himself, I'm sure, has been working in this area for quite a while and has written on this topic already. Um, And this book continues that work to go behind the scenes of industrial farming and really think about what the current state of agriculture is, where the problems are, and perhaps what we might be able to do um, more effectively in future. So Philip, I'm really happy to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book.
1: Miranda, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit more and explaining how this book really builds on and adds to your previous work?
1: Yeah, so um, my name is Philip Limbury. I'm a, a visiting professor at the University of Winchester. I'm also chief executive of Compassion in World Farming, which is a leading farmed animal welfare organisation. Um, we operate uh, on four continents uh, across the across the world. Uh based in the UK, uh, working across uh, the EU uh, with offices also in the US, China and Africa. Uh, What we're calling for is an end to factory farming. And the reason for why we are calling for that really is within the pages of the book, 60 Harvests Left, How to Reach a Nature-Friendly Future. Because factory farming is not only the biggest cause of animal cruelty, on the planet. It is also a major driver of wildlife declines and is implicit in the climate and nature emergencies that we are now facing as a a species, um, as a a planet uh, full of species. Uh, and And to tackle this existential threat, we really do need to see transformation of the food system and what 60 harvests left, tells us is two things. One, time is running out. Uh, Within a single human lifetime, we could be looking at the last harvest. There's 60 harvests left before uh, the end of the food system. And two, uh, the actual solutions to what can feel an overwhelming problem are readily at hand. Uh, they are they are beautiful, compassionate, life affirming solutions. Uh, so, uh, so so wonderful, in fact, that it makes you wonder why we're not doing them anyway.
0: Mm. Well, hopefully, we can um, outline more of the problem and hopefully get to some of those um, solutions that maybe we can implement more widely through the course of the interview. Um, but to start off, obviously, with the problem, so. Could you maybe help us understand a bit more, and um, perhaps with some of the examples that are in the book, um, why industrial agriculture is such a big contributor to climate issues?
1: Uh, in a nutshell, food contributes uh, ab- about a third of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that we we uh, we see uh, as a society, uh, and the livestock sector alone, globally, uh, contributes. Uh, More greenhouse gas emissions than the direct contributions of all the world's planes, trains and cars put together. That is why factory farming, which drives excessive meat consumption, which drives more factory farming, which drives even more meat consumption, uh, is a major contributor to uh, to to climate change, uh, to habitat destruction and uh, to animal suffering, because on factory farms, uh, farmed animals are caged, crammed and confined and kept in uh, conditions that can be described as of utter deprivation for their entire lives. It's no way to treat living, breathing, sentient creatures that can feel pain and suffer. And if we allow them to feel a a sense of joy, Um, it's no way to treat the natural world which, after all, is our life support system. And it's no way uh, to address the impending climate emergency. So that is why factory farming needs to end.
0: Mm. Thank you for explaining that um, powerfully and succinctly at the same time. How did we end up in this place? Where, when and how did industrial agriculture get to this point?
1: Well, industrial agriculture really came to the fore, really started to take off seventy years ago, just after the Second World War. And as I document in my book, you can trace the beginnings of factory farming to the Dust Bowl era of uh, of the the, the US, uh, the US Midwest. Uh, and in the Dust Bowl era, um, we we saw. Uh, uh, We saw settlers uh, on the western frontier, the Midwestern frontier, um, ploughing up vast tracts of rich prairie, which brought about uh, big harvests, bumper harvests. uh, And that supply and demand then kicked in. Oversupply of the market of of, uh, agricultural goods meant that the prices fell. And the prices fell to a point where they affected uh, where they impacted uh, markets and contributed to the the Wall Street crash of 1929. And uh, what happened was smallholders, uh, homesteaders desperate now in need of income were finding that their crops were only uh, were only now fetching half the price. So when your goods are fetching half the price, what do you do? produce twice as much, which means uh, ploughing up even more tracts of prairie, which ended up being an ecological and agricultural disaster because suddenly this, this pasture that for millennia had been rich grasslands grazed by millions of bison and other grazing creatures that were powered by nothing more than sunshine, rain, and, and fresh air, uh, suddenly the skin had been ripped off, had been plowed up so that the soil was exposed and in came the winds across the Midwest Plains and picked up huge amounts of soil and pushed it up into the air so that you had what they called dusters, dense clouds of soil that was on the move, as big as a, a mountain range. But 200 miles long, and it just swept across, turning towns from day to night, causing uh, 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 um, causing uh, misery and uh, and terror amongst the populace. Uh, and there's one documented uh, person, a mother, who uh, planned to kill her. Children, rather than leaving them to the vagaries of Armageddon. Now what that did, there was desperate times. It meant that the US government had to step in and help these hapless homesteaders that were in in real trouble. And so a new subsidy regime, uh, what has become since known as the Farm Bill, came in which locked in a system of agricultural support for farmers, helping them out of these desperate times. Uh, and what the unforeseen consequence of this uh, was was that grain cereals like corn and wheat uh, became so cheap and so ubiquitous that you may as well just feed them to animals. So grazing animals like cattle and sheep suddenly they started, uh, certainly the cattle started to be kept on feedlots. Chickens and pigs started to be kept indoors in barns instead of free ranging. Animals were, were disconnected from the land where they would normally range and fertilize that land, and they were put into these factory farms. And hey presto, factory farming was born and after the second world war this new american way of producing food through intensification then started to be promoted into europe the marshall plan uh, a fantastic us uh, aid package to uh, help to rebuild war-torn Europe uh, enabled European countries firstly to buy U.S. food and then to buy the means to produce food uh, in the U.S. way and so intensification started to spread and that intensification then got locked in in the UK by the 1947 Agriculture Act which which foresaw uh, essentially the intensification Of agriculture and within the EU by the Common Agricultural Policy, a subsidy system, a vast package of subsidy measures that lives on till today. So 70 years of government policy and subsidy together with all of the companies, the fertilizer companies, pesticide companies, the grain merchants, the pharmaceutical companies to, to keep sick animals on their, uh, on their uppers. Was, they, this, this all went behind a new, what was seen then as modern agricultural way. So essentially we got to this point where agriculture is dominated by industrialization of the countryside, by factory farming. We got to it by, uh, by a, a deliberate um, uh, tanker, if you like, of policies, uh, a juggernaut of, of policy and subsidies. But the consequences were unforeseen.
0: Mm. And so what were some of those consequences?
1: The consequences include the fact that uh, 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 most animals now are kept on factory farms and so are kept in uh, horrendous conditions, causing abject suffering, Uh, that by... Putting animals inside, so taking them out of fields and pastures, you essentially, it looks like a space saving idea, but isn't because you then have to devote vast acreages of agricultural land, prime arable land elsewhere to grow their feed, corn, wheat uh, and, and soya. And in doing so, we produce that uh, that feed usually using copious chemical pesticides and fertilisers in big fields. And what that means is, as the fields get bigger, then the trees, the bushes, and the hedges disappear, and then come in the chemicals. So the so the the weeds and the insects that would normally feed the birds, the bats, the bees, and everything else suddenly disappear, leaving you essentially with this agricultural desert uh, where nothing much lives except the crop. And then when we harvest that crop, we feed it to these factory farmed animals who then waste the vast majority of the food value in terms of calories and protein in conversion to factory farmed meat, milk and eggs. In this way, we're not only seeing the demise of our wildlife, we're not only seeing um, our soils disappearing because this is really hard way of producing food on, on the soils. Um, but we're also uh, wasting enough food in this food feed equation to feed half of humanity alive today. Four billion people's worth of food is fed to factory-farmed animals, most of which is wasted.
0: Mm. So let's turn then to perhaps some of the more optimistic aspects of the book. Um, And you talk about uh, regenerative farming techniques, for example, in Britain. What do some of these practices look like, particularly in contrast to the ones you've just described?
1: Well, I see the future, this nature friendly farming future being based around three R's firstly the regenerate the regeneration of the countryside through regenerative nature friendly farming the second rethinking protein uh, where we reduce the amount of meat and dairy which has huge planetary consequences in its production we reduce the amount of meat and dairy in our diets, making sure that we choose uh, less and better, better being from pasture-fed organic free-range sources. And the third R is through rewilding the soil um, by restoring farmed animals uh, to the countryside. So what regenerative practice is all about is exactly that, restoring farmed animals to the land as part of mixed rotational farming where the animals move around the farm uh, in a harmony with uh, crops that help to rebuild soil naturally, that reduce the cost to farmers because you you, you use much less, uh, if any, Uh, chemical pesticides or fertilizers so that those input costs are driven down. The animals are healthier so you don't need to use antibiotics. It's worth noting that because of factory farming largely three quarters of the world's antibiotics are fed to farmed animals. Can you believe that? So using this regenerative agricultural method, we reduce pharmaceutical inputs, we reduce chemical pesticides and fertilizers, we give animals back the joy of living, the farmed animals, and in so doing, we create a nature-friendly environment where bees, birds, bats, all start coming back in their, in their, in their droves. And at the same time, at the same time, We preserve the future for our children by restoring soil health and making sure that we move from a situation where in a single lifetime we could see the last harvest, we move to a situation where there could be infinite harvests.
0: Mm. I'd love to um, talk about a few of those things you've mentioned in more detail, um, because obviously the Stakes are quite immense, um, but the potential is as well. So, I was wondering if you could tell us maybe um, a particular example or more about um, soil regeneration in particular and how that can be done in this kind of context.
1: Well, what happens is that by having, I mean, I guess the best example that I can give you is a fantastic farm called White Oak Pastures in Georgia, USA. It's run by uh, a pioneer called Will Harris. And it's a very big farm, pastures, as, as far as the eye can see, you know, uh, broken up by uh, woodlands and, and lakes. And on this pasture, you see um, herds of cattle that are being followed by herds of sheep that are being followed by pigs that are being followed by uh, flocks of, of, uh, of chickens. Uh, and turkeys and guinea fowl and ducks on the move. These animals are moving in rotation. And what they're doing is they're living naturally. Their, their, their droppings are restoring fertility to the soil. And what that does, what that does is it helps to take carbon out of the atmosphere and to store it in the soil. It helps to conserve water because this is, this is the big point. A lot of people um, credit soil for growing food. Ninety five percent of our food comes from the soil. What we overlook is that the soil locks up twice the carbon there is in the atmosphere. It is also the thing which stops most of the world's rainwater simply running straight back out into rivers and back into the sea. It holds water against gravity to to nurture thirsty plants, including our crops. So by keeping animals in this rotation, be it uh, on uh, permanent pastures like Will Harris's in, uh, in in Georgia or by mixed rotation, as I've seen near Basingstoke, uh, Tim May has got uh, a big farm. It's 10 times bigger than the average UK farm. And his animals are moving in symphony with, uh, with crops. And he used to be spending about 700 pounds a hectare on chemicals to spray uh, pests away and to fertilize using, uh, using artificial fertilizers. Why did he give it up? Why did he give up all that chemical use? Because it didn't matter how much invested in more chemicals, his yields were decreasing because his soil was tired. So he brought back farmed animals, brought back rotation, put away the chemicals and in so doing uh, restored his soil back to health. Now, that's what we need to do on a national and an international, or on a global basis, if we are to create a sustainable future for animals, people, and the planet. Hmm.
0: Could you, um, one of the other things that you mentioned in um, the idea of kind of the whole ecosystem of regenerative farming is, of course, bees, which are hugely, hugely important um, to a variety of things. And I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit more about how bees can be brought back, especially at scale.
1: Yeah, bees are really important because a third of our uh, food worldwide relies on the pollination of creatures like bees. So if they were to go, a lot of our food would go. Uh, and uh, how do we bring them back at, at scale? Well, uh, some fantastic uh, farmers, Mark and Paul Haywood in Suffolk have been working this out um, themselves they 're pig farmers uh, they keep their farm that their their pigs outdoors in uh, fantastic free range uh, and outdoor conditions uh, and i 've been there. Um, several times now, I'm always impressed by what I see. But I'm even more impressed now because they've not only got the pigs outdoors, but they've also got uh, a bees coming back in plenty. Because what they've worked out is that by interspersing their 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 pigs or their crops with essentially um, football pitches of uh, of wild flowers of of uh, pollinator friendly uh, 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 flowers, they can work out how to bring back a million bees. So if they can tell you, if you want five million bees on your farm, ten million bees or just one million, how to bring that number back by planting these tracts of bee-friendly uh, wild flowers uh, in rotation with your crops. And there uh, I think we introduce a new concept. We've talked about rewilding of the soil by bringing uh, farmed animals back and restoring the ecosystem under the, underfoot uh, and, and restoring soil fertility in that way. But what we're talking about with the bees is renaturing, where you, you're, you're looking at your farm and thinking, well, actually, 85 percent, roughly speaking, of your farm can be producing food. But you've got to also remember that there are going to be nooks and crannies, There are going to be field edges and corners, fields that are too small to be reworked, or they're going to be hillsides that really shouldn't be planted. And those are the areas where you can target with these bee-friendly uh, 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 packages of uh, of wild flowers uh, and bring nature back. And it's not just bees, of course. You'll be bringing back birds. You'll be bringing back soil health uh, in a fantastic symbiosis.
0: Hmm. Thank you for explaining um, that. And I, I particularly want to pick up on the point of kind of um, land being different, right? All land is not just flat and perfectly arable. There are the corners and the hills and all sorts of things. Um, and of course, there's also land with a lot of water. And obviously in England, um, the Fens of Eastern England are traditionally kind of one of these areas that have been impacted quite a lot by human activity and kind of changes of land. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of efforts um, in that area for that kind of land and how um, regenerative and protective efforts are going.
1: Well, the Fens, of course, is one of the great bread baskets of, of Britain. Uh, but as it stands, they are in trouble. The soil is depleting at, at quite a rate to the point where the, the soils on the Fens, certainly the black Fenland soil, which is so super rich, could be gone in uh, 30 to 40 years. That's not just me saying that. Um, it's scientific assessments, it's uh, practical farmer assessments. It's also Michael Gove, when he was the uh, DEFRA Secretary of State uh, so, you know, there's a, a lot of weight behind this. So it's desperate times on, on the fens. And two initiatives are going on out there. One is to try and restore nature to, uh, to to the fens. So the Great Fen Project, which is about bringing back that sort of rewilded habitat, if you like. But the other is by bringing regenerative agriculture to the fenland landscape and here a company called G fresh uh, which uh, is run by uh, John Shropshire and his family what they've done is they've introduced this rotational mixed style of farming where whereby in the past they've had only crops uh, and are produced in monocultures, in single crop uh, tracts. What they've done is they've started to reintroduce grazing animals, sheep, and and rotating those sheep. And they're hoping to bring cattle. They're hoping to bring uh, chickens and rotating them around the farm to help rebuild the soils uh, and to help to, help stop the, the, the Fenland soil decline that, frankly, is threatening Uh, one of Britain's best food production areas.
0: Hmm. So in a lot of senses, what you've just described to us um, makes a lot of sense, right? There's a clear problem. There are some solutions that are working. Um, And yet we don't at least currently see these farming practices being taken up at, as you said, the national or the global level. So why do farmers stick with um, the more sort of traditional farming, and what, why aren't what, what's getting in the way of farmers more taking on these regenerative
1: practices? I think a big part of the problem is that intensive agricultural practices are so heavily entrenched. They've been put there through seventy years of government policy and subsidy. They've been reinforced by the teachings of every agricultural college and institution in the land they've been locked in by the the companies that are set to benefit uh, by supplying farmers with with pesticides and with uh, artificial fertilizers and with grain feeding uh, and with uh, pharmaceuticals and with machinery, all of these things are going to reinforce the intensive way, and so it's difficult for farmers. And remember that the average age of of uh, farmers, a bit like me, uh, my average, I'm, I'm I'm in that average age band. It's about fifty seven years old, and when you get to fifty seven, you're pretty stuck in your ways. Uh, so it's, it's not farmers' fault that we are where we are, but it is going to take a big Uh, a a big dose of leadership from government, from corporations, from from the UN, from farming bodies to get behind this new way and to get behind it whilst there's still time to make a difference.
0: So what are the kind of top things, I suppose, that you would want to see um, at a global or UN level?
1: The main thing that we want to see is to end factory farming, to end the industrial production of animals uh, and and crops, and to move to a regenerative, nature friendly way of producing food, coupled with a reduction in the reliance on meat heavy diets, which are bad for our health, bad for the the, the planet uh, and lock in uh, factory farming. The other thing that I'd like to see is uh, is a real seriousness about rewilding the soil. And here I would say, let's bring back the elephant. We've talked about rewilding in other contexts, which is free-willed nature. And, uh, and what I would like to see is the elephant brought back to Britain, to Europe, to, to the U.S., uh, uh areas particularly where the soil is in big trouble. Now here I should quickly explain that I'm not talking about uh, in talking about elephants I'm not talking about uh, big animals with uh, with a trunk and, and floppy ears. I'm talking about the elephant's weight of biodiversity that should be beneath every football pitch sized patch of healthy soil because healthy soil, healthy soil should have should be teeming with worms it should have about 4 million worms in every football pitch size bit of soil it should have uh, the as, as much biodiversity 13,000 uh, species uh, in that area it should have as much weight uh, equivalent to in, in terms of biodiversity equivalent to an elephant so that there should be more life underground than there is above ground. Uh, yet sadly uh, in this country and uh, in in uh, many other countries too because of industrialization uh, that, that isn't the case. I can give you an example of uh, I live on a farm hamlet in West Sussex and uh, I remember being out Um, walking my dog, Duke, our rescue dog. And um, uh, we came across a field that was being ploughed. And I watched the the plough going up and, and down, creating plumes of dust that was catching in the sun, creating an aura. And I reflected that this is an iconic countryside scene, timeless in its execution. And as I stood and marveled. Suddenly I tweaked that something was wrong. When I looked I could see that the plough was being followed by nothing. There were no birds, there were no gulls screeching behind looking for an easy meal of of worms that had been unearthed by the upended uh, soil. And I could see that the tractor was ploughing across a a footpath. So it gave me legitimacy to go and get a bird's eye view of that newly ploughed soil. And I looked down and I stared intently just as a gull would. And do you know what I saw? Nothing. Not a single worm or beetle or any other creature scuttling to try and get back into its upturned world what I could see was sand, soil that was, that was devoid of, uh, of health-giving nutrients. Honestly, I could have been walking on the moon. And when it rained, I watched as uh, uh, a lot of that soil would wash into the nearby river, turning uh, a, a, a beautiful uh, uh, river into uh, a, a, a frothy cappuccino uh, colour because of the soil that was going in.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, I'd love to um, sort of close off relatively on a somewhat optimistic note. Um, and so I was wondering, in addition to the various efforts um, and work that's being done that you've already told us about, are there any additional techniques or efforts um, that you find particularly sort of Exciting or hopeful innovations that make you have hope for avoiding this prediction of only 60 harvests left?
1: What really makes me hopeful is that the penny is starting to drop. Uh, Last year, I was I I was proud to be an ambassadorial champion for the UN Food Systems Summit. The General Secretary of the UN could see uh, a, a big vision that we need to transform food systems to overcome Uh, the climate emergency to overcome the current war on nature. And what was great was that governments across the world were starting to adopt this new language of transformation, of regeneration. And this is so, so important that we embrace the beauty of bringing nature back to our farms, of putting away those chemicals and those cages, of allowing animals to experience the joy of life. In this way, we have those beautiful, life-affirming, magical ways of producing better food, better food and a better future for us all. So how can we all get involved in this? By using the power of our plate. We have power three times a day by choosing to eat more plants and less meat, making sure that any meat and dairy we do eat comes from better production, life-affirming production. Uh, So from pasture-fed, free-range or organic uh, farming uh, in this country is uh, the way to go.
0: Thank you for um, ending us off with that. I think that that's, um, in a lot of ways, a very good encapsulation of the book. Um, on the one hand, making clear the stakes and just how big the problem is and explaining how we got there, um, but also showing a lot of different ways that there are room for excitement there's cool innovations happening um, and that there is very much a potential way forward so thank you very much for sharing um, your insights with us um, giving us sort of an insight into your work and of course into the book as well which as a reminder to listeners is titled 60 harvests left how to reach a nature-friendly future um, just out from bloomsbury in 2022 so philip limbury thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
1: Pleasure. Thank you so much.